Well, welcome to uh, uh, a brand new teaching series. I always get a little more enthused. I don't know if it's right or wrong, but I always get a little more excited when we start something new in terms of our teaching series at GPC. Um, we finished up, last time I was up here, finished up a series that was strangely titled Killing Chicken Little, and then we had food on the back end of that, had a chicken barbecue cooked by Randy Yoder, and that was awesome. I think I still have that taste in my mouth of the great chicken from that. Uh, after that, Keith Rohr came, and grateful uh, to him, uh, sharing resources at Keystone. And then Kevin took last week, which was great, and I'm back with you now. We're starting a new series that we're calling this, For God So Loved the Terrorist, which is meant to make us stop and think for a minute about what did he just say and what are we doing. And I previewed this two weeks ago maybe and said, hey, this is going to be basically a study on the book of Jonah. Uh, And Jonah is a very interesting book in itself, right? Like Jonah is one of those strange um, names and stories that is so well known that you just need to say one word, Jonah. And you, even if you don't go to church, if you're not a Bible person or an even a church person, you know the story. It's one of those strange but so well-known names. Like I don't know how many of you know an individual named Jonah. Probably not very many of us know someone named Jonah because not a lot of people like to name their kid Jonah for one reason or another because of the story of Jonah. Now, if you know someone named Jonah or you're Jonah right now, my apologies to you, but Jonah isn't necessarily painted in the best of light in the book of Jonah. Now, you know the, you know the story. I mean, it's simple. In fact, this is actually marketed to children. It's marketed. You'll often see church nurseries with a whale, you know, and, you know, maybe, I don't think there's any pictures of the vomit coming out of the whale with Jonah coming out, but there's the whale, right? Then there's Nineveh, and there's Jonah doing whatever Jonah does. But it's a very um, image-rich story that grabs imagination and holds and stays with us. It's a very tangible picture. It's also very strange. Like, could a person really survive in the belly of a whale for X amount of days and then get spit up and be okay with that? And could, while he's in the belly of the whale, actually compose a song like he did in Jonah chapter 2? And could it actually make sense in the middle of all the sloshing acid and sea junk that's also picked up in the belly of the whale? And you know, what is in the world is going on? So the book of Jonah is very interesting. Because it's so well known, that itself presents a real problem. I don't know if you ever thought about this. Because the book is so well-known and it's so marketed, the truth is, for people outside of church circles, those who would be, we'll call them critics of the Christian faith, or people who are not believers in Jesus Christ, or people who have grown up in the church but have grown out of their faith, They've grown up in the church, but they look back at their faith as a childhood kind of faith and walk away from things. They will look at the book of Jonah and be like, you foolish Christians believing this story actually is real. You're kidding me, right? Like you, do, you really, do you really believe that? Can you hold this with intellectual fortitude that this book is talking about real events. I mean, think about this for a minute. A man getting thrown overboard into the the storming ocean and a whale coming up and swallowing him. Now, number one, 
How do you even survive that? But number two, how do you compose a song or a poem in the middle of that belly of the whale? Number three, doesn't the acid kind of eat away at you? Number four, who's there to record what you're writing about while you're in there? There's no GoPro in the middle of the whale's belly that picks up the action in there. There's nothing like that. So how does it even get recorded? Then number three, like how does this even uh, happen? Does the city of Nineveh even come to faith? I mean, repentance on day one of a 40-day a warning, 40 days in Nineveh will be overturned, and on day one, the entire city repents? Are you kidding me? And we have, by the way, we have zero historical record that this ever happened. Zero historical record that the people of Nineveh ever repented. In fact, they are destroyed because of their disobedience to God. And so, Christian people, are you telling me that you hold to this, and don't forget the magic plant that grows up in one day, boom, and then goes away the next day. Show me a plant, even with miracle growth today, that can do that. And maybe we can start talking, and you add all of this together. And critics of the faith are going to say, Come, seriously? Is that, is that what you... Can, can you really, with intellectual rigor, without checking your brains at the door, say, sure, this story's real. And this is why I want to start here this morning, because I think it is a very important issue. I'm going to speak about the book of Jonah for seven weeks. We have got to start here, because here's what I want for you. If you are growing up in the church, or if you're growing out of your faith, or if you've experienced this, here's what I know will happen. As you grow up, and as you experience people outside of a friendly church confines, your views of the Bible will be challenged. Your views of faith will be rocked by people who will ask you difficult questions about what we call the veracity or the truth of maybe what you have never, ever asked questions of before. If you grow up and go to college, or if you interact with people who've walked away from the faith, and they really start asking you questions about the truth, even of something maybe, quote-unquote, silly, like the book of Jonah. If we don't interact with that here in the church... How are you going to interact with it, quote-unquote, out there? And so at the beginning of this book study, we really have to ask this question, and that is this. Did this really happen? Did this really happen? Did the story of Jonah that you all know so well, did it actually happen? Now, there's really two big pictures on that. There's the historical view that it did happen, and then for lack of a better term, I'll put it over here uh, in, our, in our stage here and say the non-historical view. That no, it didn't actually happen, but it's a story. In the historical view, I mean, it's really simple. And truthfully, I grew up over here. And maybe some of you, if not maybe all of you, maybe most of you, I don't know, grew up over here. With You know, it's a story. It's in the Bible. The Bible's true. Jesus, you know, referred to the book of Jonah. It's got to be true. Sure, it happened. Now what's next? And you maybe have never really thought in detail about whether this is actually true. But you grew up believing that it actually happened, a historical view. Now, if you're over here, I'll tell you this. There's a lot of people over here with you. Right? Number one, when I approach the Bible, I always approach the Bible um, trying to read the Bible, as we call it, in the normal sense, like what is actually there. I don't try to read the Bible figuratively first. I don't come to the Bible and think, there must be a hidden message behind what's obvious. That's the only way God will speak to me, is if I can uncover some kind of secret message underneath. 
No, I approach it with the most plain and natural reading of Scripture that I can get. Like, I don't think the authors are trying to confuse us or write hidden codes in their language. They're just trying to be clear with what's happening, so I'm going to read it that way. When you read the book of Jonah, the first thing you do, you read it, it sounds like a real story. And so I approach it that way. That's my opening approach. I'm going to read it normally. In the book, as it opens up, it refers to real names of people, the Jonah, the son of Amittai. We all of a sudden get someone placed with a genealogical connection to somebody else. Real place names are used, like Nineveh and like Tarshish. It appears to be immediately located within real place and real time. For uh, hundreds of years, great scholars and theologians have simply believed this book is historical. And every miracle in the book is plausible. Even the growing plant, even the, the man in the, the fish, and all of it is plausible. We're not going to put God in a box and say he can't do it, so we're going to believe in the historical piece. Now, that may be how you grew up. But you also need to know that there are good people over on this side, on the non-historical side, who acknowledge that there are some things about this book that are weird and strange and that might actually point to this book being more of an extended parable, story, rather than a record of actual events that happened. And so people over here are going to say, you know what, there's some uniquenesses about this book. Number one, Jonah is told to go to a place to prophesy. Prophets aren't told to go somewhere else. They're told to prophesy in the native land where they are. Like they prophesy, but they prophesy to the people around them, the message that is given to them. But no one else is told to go anywhere else. So we start there with Jonah. Number two, with Jonah, there's no other prophet who's recorded um, who resists the call so badly. There are hesitant people like Moses, who's like, ah, God, I don't know if I can do it. Um, But there's no one else who resists so badly that he runs the other way, as if running from, as I think Spurgeon would call him, the hound of heaven, running from God, who's going to track you down? Who's going to run from God? What are you, a fool? What do you think you're going to do if God has given you this message? Like, there's no one else who runs from God like this. There's so many surprises in this little book. One uh, author writes it this way, Leslie Allen. He wrote, this little book is a series of surprises. It is crammed with an accumulation of hair-raising and eye-popping phenomena, one after the other. The violent sea storm, the submarine-like fish in which Jonah survives as he composes a song, the mass conversion of Nineveh, the magic plant, These are not commonplace features of Old Testament prophetic narratives. While one or two exciting events would raise no question, the bombardment of the reader with surprise after surprise in a provocative manner suggests that the author's intention is other than simply to describe historical facts. And just as there are a lot of good people over here on this side saying it's historical, there are also very good people over here who are saying this is non-historical. One of the main reasons for that is there's no record of an entire city, not just any city, but the capital of Israel's worst enemy at the time, Assyria. The capital of Assyria. 
all of them turning to Yahweh in repentance and conversion in one big moment. We don't have a historical record of it. In a way, it's an argument from silence. But one would think, if you have such a mass conversion and the king of Nineveh, who functions in that time as the, the, not only the ruler administratively, he doesn't just make the laws, but he's also like the high priest. He establishes the religion and the culture of the day. Everything flows through the king, and the king in the story of Jonah is shown to be throwing himself down in sackcloth and ashes and repenting and asking for, for help. And the, the, all the people follow him. And Jonah at the end of the book is angry that God would have compassion on all these people. One would think that if such a big event happened in real time, in real space, that that would be at least a blip on someone's historical radar. The truth is, even those who agree it's a historical event will acknowledge there's no record of this happening. In fact, what happens to Nineveh is they're destroyed. Assyria is destroyed, wiped off the face of the earth following the prophecies of Nahum. C.S. Lewis is one of those people who puts himself over here on this side. C.S. Lewis says this of Jonah, and he agrees with, by the way, people like Martin Luther as well, who will be on this side. He'll say, the point is that the whole book of Jonah has to me the air of being a moral romance, a quite different kind of thing from, say, the account of King David or the New Testament narratives, not pegged like them into any historical situation. So we have strong people who we'd look at, maybe depending on where you're at, theologically or biblically, who'd be over here saying, you know, this is probably a story, an extended parable meant to teach a lesson. And here's why we believe that. And then there's many good people over here who'd say, hey, we hear them, we hear them. Here's why we believe it's historical. Things are plausible. We're not going to put God in a box. Now, the reason I bring that up is there are people that I know, who I've talked to, who've walked away from the faith, who are like, come on, do you really believe this silly stuff in the Bible? Like, we start, you start hearing the criticisms of Bible stories. And it, if you hold Jonah as historical, there's no other way to do it. There's no other way. And if you get rid of Jonah, if you get rid of these, these kind of miracles, then my faith falls apart. I just want to tell you, you can have your criticisms of Jonah. You can have your criticisms of whether this book really actually records real events or not. You can have that. And to me, that doesn't destroy anything. Because here's the next question. Does it matter if this really happened? Does it matter if this really happened? Does it matter for your faith or for mine if this really happened, or if this is an extended story or parable about something else. Let me put it to you this way. Um, imagine for a minute if my wife and I were uh, having a candlelit dinner for our anniversary. Um, you know, actually, every Tuesday we have a candlelit dinner. No, I'm just kidding. Anyway, imagine my wife and I having a candlelit dinner, romantic time, and I were to say to her, Honey, I love you with the same love that Romeo loved his Juliet which I say that every day anyway. And let's just say we could agree that the point of Romeo and Juliet is that there is a love that lasts till death. Right? We can maybe say that better, but let's just for argument's sake today say that there's a love that lasts till death. That's the point of Romeo and Juliet. Now, what is she going to say besides you know, starting to cry and respond and just you know, love for me? She's not going to say, hey, Tim, that didn't really happen. Try again, Jack. There's no way... It didn't happen, 
But we understand what Shakespeare wrote and what he meant by what he wrote, and he wrote a story for sure to communicate a point that we agree on and we communicate to other people and we use to send messages and we use to change hearts, to understand the condition of the human heart. So I don't need Shakespeare to be recording a historical event for this thing to still have important impact. And so when people start trying to destroy things in the Bible that maybe it happened, maybe it didn't, that's not going to blow my life up. It's not going to blow my faith up. I do the same thing with the parable of the Good Samaritan, for example. I use that story, and maybe you do as well, to teach to people. But no one ever says, I'm not going to listen to that unless it really happened. We all know it didn't really happen. It's just a story. It's a parable, and it communicates a message. I don't need it to really have happened for the impact and the import of it to be real. And I might ask the same thing for the book of Jonah. Like, does it really matter if it really happened or not? Now, if you've grown up with it really happening like I have, it's a fairly big question, but let me walk with you through that. Like, does it actually impact your view on the authority of the Bible or the inerrancy of the Bible or its inspiration? I might suggest no. The integrity of the Bible still stands. The, the inspiration of the story still stands. The inerrancy of the Bible still stands. The authority of the Bible still stands on story as it does in history, as it does in poetry. So when critics of the book of Jonah start coming and saying, yeah, you don't want to know why I've walked away from the faith? Because of stupid childhood stories like Jonah. Who believes that stuff? You've got to be kidding me. Look at the evidence. It's not there. I might say, all right, what else do you have? Like, what if I agree with you? What if it's a story? What about that? What if it's a story? Why do you think that a story would be included in the Bible at all? Because there's a bunch of stories in the Bible, and they're included to make a point. Now, maybe it did happen. Maybe it did happen. But maybe it's a story included to make a really significant point, just like the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan, if you know that story, ends with a question. After Jesus lays it out, he asks the question, which of these men was a neighbor to the one who was attacked? And with that clincher of a question, Jesus closes the parable of the Good Samaritan. The story of Jonah closes with a clincher of a question. And it's a question of this. Should I not have compassion on this great city? And it closes with that question hanging in the balance. And it's that question that I want to guide our discussion in the book of Jonah because that, I believe, is the main point of this book. God asking the prophet Jonah, Jonah, should I not have compassion on these people? That is the point of the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah talks about the great God. I, I agree with G. Campbell Morgan. He wrote back in 1960, he said this, Men have been looking so hard at the great fish that they have failed to see the great God. 
This isn't a story about whether the fish was real or not, or whether the plant really grew or not. That isn't the issue. Sure, we can talk about that. That's fine. We can have that conversation. At the end of the day, this is a story about the great God of the book of Jonah. That is the message that I want to lean into for seven weeks, looking at a God who reveals his heart through this book. His compassion outpaces the compassion of Jonah. His compassion outpaces my compassion. And here's the crossroads that we are put if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. What do I do when God's compassion outpaces mine? What is my reaction? How do I respond when my comfort is put on a collision course with God's compassion? What am I going to do? That is the message of the book of Jonah. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to the book of Jonah. Jonah chapter 1. It's in the Old Testament, by the way. The Old Testament is in your first um, two-thirds of your Bible. And the book of Jonah is in what we call the Minor Prophets. That is toward the end of the Old Testament. It's a small little book. They're called Minor Prophets because they're just small in page size but they're still valuable and strong in what they teach. So Jonah chapter 1, and we're going to be reading from the um, NIV here. There we go. All right, Jonah chapter 1. By the way, if you don't own a Bible, there is a Bible in the pew around you, and we'd be glad to give that Bible to you if you don't own one. Okay, Jonah chapter 1, the first three verses of this book. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Now, this is the beginning of the story that you know. No surprise here. If you've read this before, you've heard about the story of Jonah. But it's interesting to ask some questions about what you know and what I know. So first of all, God says, go. We see that in verse 2. Go to the worst part of town, to the terror-infested land of Nineveh, to the worst part you can imagine. And then, verse 3, but Jonah ran away from the Lord. Now, I have to ask the question, why did Jonah run? Like, is it afraid? Is it an issue of being afraid of the city? I guess that's possible. Maybe he's afraid. But here's what I think, based on how this book unfolds. I think Jonah knows what is up. Like, I think he knows that when God says, I want you to go there and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Here's what I think Jonah knows. God is going to give these people another chance. It's not that I'm afraid to go. I don't want them to have another chance. And if he's going to use me to do that, I would rather run away. And I'm going to suggest to you, we're going to cover it uh, next week, I'm going to suggest to you the reason that Jonah wanted the sailors to throw him into the sea because he would rather die then go to Nineveh. He didn't expect a fish to come. Kill me. That'll be fine. I'd rather die than let the Assyrians have a chance for repentance. He ran the other way. Hebrews are land-bound people, and so for a Hebrew to go to a boat 
get on a ship and go the other way on the sea is a big deal. Another one of those literary big deals and surprises that the author writes into this book. Jonah goes the other way and he's so freaked out by the chance of people that he hates hearing about the compassion of God. I would rather get on a ship that I hate and possibly die on the way to Tarshish rather than give those people a chance to hear about God again. And so he goes to Tarshish. If you know where that is, that's the opposite side, going the complete other direction. It's not like he goes to family to hide or whatever. He just goes away. Now, I need to read you a little bit about what's going on in Nineveh, and I think it was probably good that our children went for children's church. If I offend you with some of the imagery of what the Ninevites were about, it's not my intent. I just want to bring you up to speed historically on what was happening and why the nation of Israel hated the Assyrians and why they were such a brutal people. And so um, John Hanna wrote in the Bible Knowledge Commentary about the capital of Nineveh and about the Assyrians. Just imagine living as an Israelite with the neighbor being the Assyrians and their dominance and control and power. It's difficult for us if you live here in the U.S. to imagine because we are, we are in a position of strength. We're, we're in a position of strength. We don't have another nation over top of us. We just don't. This is not the situation in, uh, in Israel at the time. And so here's, here's Jonah writing. And, um, or not, not Jonah. He didn't write the Bible Knowledge Commentary. John Hanna wrote this part. He said this about uh, Assyria. He said, Nineveh was the capital of one of the cruelest, vilest, most powerful, and most idolatrous empires in the world. For example, writing of one of his conquests, Asher Bonapal II, a king, boasted, I stormed the mountain peaks and took them in the midst of the mighty mountains. I slaughtered them. With their blood I dyed the mountain red like wool. The heads of the warriors I cut off and I formed them into a pillar over against their city. Their young men and their maidens I burned in the fire. Regarding one captured leader, he wrote, I flayed him, his skin I spread upon the wall of the city. He also wrote of mutilating the bodies of live captives and stacking their corpses in piles. Does this sound like any countries that we hear about today? Shalmaneser II, another king, boasted of his cruelties after one of his campaigns. A pyramid of heads I reared in front of his city. Their youths and their maidens I burnt up in the flames. Sennacherib, another king, wrote of his enemies, I cut their throats like lambs. I cut off their precious lives as one cuts a string. Like the many waters of a storm, I made the contents of their gullets and entrails run down upon the wide earth. Their hands I cut off. Another Ashurbanipal described his treatment of a captured leader in these words, I pierced his chin with my keen hand dagger, and through his jaw I passed a rope, put a dog chain upon him, and made him occupy a kennel. In his campaign against Egypt, Ashurbanipal also boasted that his officials hung Egyptian corpses on stakes, stripped off their skins, and covered the city walls with them. So it's no wonder Nahum called Nineveh the city of blood, a city noted for its cruelty. Ashurbanipal was egotistic, and he wrote this about himself. He said, I am Ashurbanipal, the great king, the mighty king, king of the universe, king of Assyria. The great gods magnified my name. They made my rule powerful. 
Esarhaddon was even more boastful. He said, I am powerful. I am all-powerful. I am a hero. I am gigantic. I am colossal. I am honored. I am magnified. I am without equal among all kings, the chosen one of Asher, Nabu, and Marduk, their local gods. And so it's to this city that God says, hey, Jonah, go give him another chance. Do you mind? I know, I know they've killed a lot of your people, cruelly. I know that they're making you a vassal state, meaning you have to pay taxes to them. I know they've taken all your skilled laborers and imprisoned them or executed them. I understand all that. I understand they've completely ruined your worship. You can't even worship where you're used to. I get, yeah, I get all that. Do you mind, Jonah? Can you, can you, come here, come here, Jonah, come here. I want you to go tell them about my compassion. And Jonah gets on a ship and goes the other way. Gets on the water and says, I'd rather die in the water going the opposite way than be anything close to giving the people I hate a chance to hear about God's compassion. And thus begins the book of Jonah with this tension of God's compassion and Jonah's hesitance. When God's compassion outpaces Jonah's, what do we do? God asks us to give a second chance to the person we think we're justified to hate, to the person who's offended us for their insensitivity, to the family member who isn't welcome at the table and hasn't been for a long time, to the leader who you don't like, they bugged you to the boss who's kind of a jerk to the person in school who no one likes you're justified not to like them too and what if God's heart is go to the people that I love, even in their vilest condition. What am I going to do with that? And I just want to start this. This is just an introduction. I just want to start this message series with this question that I'm going to keep coming back to. I'm not even asking you to change anything this week. Right? I'm going to, not asking anything big this week. Here's all I'm asking. I just want you to be willing. I just want you to consider one question as we begin this series. I just want you to consider allowing this question to settle down into your conscience and to settle down into your week and come back again next week and allow it to settle a little bit further. I just want you to consider one question, that is God. Who do I need to have compassion on? It's easy, simple question. I just want to encourage you to ask, God, who do I need to have compassion on? Who have I written off? Who do I want to avoid? Who do I not talk to anymore because I'm angry with them? Who has wronged me and crossed me that I won't forgive? Who in my family I just, who maybe even around the world I'm just angry at? Maybe, maybe. Who even in our country, maybe in our government's Do I need to have compassion on? 
hard question. God, who do I need to have compassion on? Biblical compassion always leads to action. Biblical compassion is not a feeling of niceness towards somebody or posture of being open to them. Biblical compassion always, always, always leads to action. And I just want to encourage you to ask the question. Allow this to filter down and settle in. God, who do you want me to have compassion on? Who do I need to have compassion on? Next week, when we continue this book of Jonah, we're going to learn from a group of ungodly people, the sailors, how to have a godly and right response to people in need. We'll see compassion in action from some ungodly people next week. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the book of Jonah and the message that it sends us, the truth that we can mine from it, for what it reveals of your heart and your character, the greatness of your compassion toward the people whom you have made and the challenge, the deep challenge it is to us, to consider the weight of having compassion on people that we feel justified not to have compassion on. Father, break down that hardness of our hearts that has been there for years. Ah, Father, I pray that by your Spirit you would chip away the hard exterior, sometimes even the numbness to the anger and the hatred that we feel to some people or even the apathy that we feel towards some people around us. Father, I pray that you would break that in us and that you would use maybe this book or this series to chip that stuff away that our hearts can be pliable again to have compassion that leads to action on people that maybe rightly so have wronged us or bothered us or crossed us. Oh, that we could be people who turn continually to you to see your heart. Help us where we need to grow. And we thank you so much for the grace that you have already shown us, the amazing grace that you have already shown us through the message of the cross to come to us when we were already so far from you. Give us courage to do what we know we need to do. We love you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.